when I went to college, uh, yes, it was a long time ago, but when I went to college, uh, I developed a friendship with a guy named Andrew. You've heard me talk about Andrew before. Andrew and I are opposite in so many ways, which is why the friendship worked. Um, I'm a little guy. Andrew's a really big guy. I mean, my mom's shaking her head. Yes, when I brought Andrew home or when she met Andrew for the first I mean, he's like six foot 24 <laughs> and a gazillion pounds. I mean, it's, you know, it, he was just big. Only he didn't do football or any sports. It was the oddest thing, okay? Andrew, so, okay, so there we're, we don't match up. And I always thought, man, to be that tall, okay? Uh, he was a National Merit Scholar. I know I wasn't a National Merit Scholar. So I was like, Andrew is so smart. And he would, at Wheaton, I really wanted to get all A's, but I couldn't pull it off at Wheaton. In high school, I could pull it off, but at Wheaton, I just couldn't. And I, I would work and work and study and study. Andrew would kind of casually read some stuff in class and do his own thing and then turn in papers and the profs would be like, oh, this is brilliant. And I was like, what? It was so unfair. And I so envied his ability to just waltz through and be Mr. Brilliant. We did an English class together um, taught by Dr. Riken. He's written a lot of literature as the Bible stuff. You can get it on Amazon. And um, Dr. Riken was this funny prof, uh, scary but funny. And uh, his exams were killer exams. Andrew would develop this thing called the war chest, which was his unlocking the secrets of Dr. Riken. And he'd put it together like two nights before the exam and all these other students. And sure enough, every question that he said, Riken would, was on there. He was like dead on 90% of the time. And so good or bad, intentional or not, I spent a lot of college com- time comparing myself to Andrew. And a lot of times I was like, man, Andrew's just smarter, taller. Um, this summer, this summer, I've spent a lot of extra time at the swimming pool. Why? Because my wife is a swim coach in the summer. So um, I've, I've noticed, like, lack of muscle for me. I had a, I had a plan that I was going to be ready for this uh, pool season, and I was going to do PX90. <laughs> I was. Well, you know, for guys, most of us, the one big muscle is the one right here, right? Okay? And the belly muscle. And, hey, don't knock it, ladies, because the way to a man's heart is where? Oh, see? Okay, there is a connection. Um, but I researched, and I, and I discovered that I'm this classification in bodybuilding circles called an ectomorph, which means that I could basically freebase that protein powder stuff. I will never gain weight. <laughs> Literally, you could hook up an IV with the protein powder stuff from the health food store, and I, it's, the bulking up ain't going to happen. It's just, you know... So, oh, okay, so, you know, I have occasionally I have muscle envy. Now, as a pastor, as a pastor, this gets a little pernicious because uh, I'll often compare myself, like if I'll listen to a sermon by Andy Stanley, and I'll just be in awe, and I'll be like, whoa. Or, or Pete Heiss from Quest, or Craig Groeschel, who's got like 5,000 churches all over the world and some on Mars. I didn't even know there were people on Mars, but he's got a satellite campus there. And so... I'll compare myself to people 10, 15 years down the road from me. And then I'll go, man, if I, you know, I wish I could preach like that. Or, you know, I wish God would use me like that. Or, you know, wah. And so, and of all the weeks, it was funny. Um, I go to this leadership conference called the Catalyst Conference. And, and they send me books all the time, boxes of books, about once every two months. And in the box this week, ironically, 
was a book by this 24-year-old pastor who started a church in North Carolina and grew it to like 6,000 people in 24 months. I know, <laughs> in the Raleigh-Durham, so it's a big city. And, you know, I think the title of the book was The Sun Stands Still. It stood still for me, it can for you. You know, it's one of those kind of books. I put it back in the box and closed the box. <laughs> I was like, I don't need to read that, okay? I say all that to say, at times, I struggle with comparing myself to other people. And you do too. It's the woman at work who's dropped 30 pounds. Come on. And, and you do the comparison game. Or the neighbor who drives up in the brand new car with the new car smell. And you think, oh, I want one of those. Um, or your brother or sister who runs faster. Or no matter what, they're the ones who get all the A's. Or their mom or dad's favorite. Or whatever. Okay, And all of us do this comparison thing. And as, uh, the, the killer thing about it is um, there's always somebody who has more than we have who does stuff better than we do, who can run faster, who, who is simply better. It's just the case. And, and when we do that kind of comparison thing, it's, it turns out being bad, doesn't it? There's actually a word for it. You know what the word is? Envy. That's exactly what it is. And I got this Wikipedia definition of envy. Envy, also called invidiousness. Try that at work. You know, I think, Lurleen, your problem is that you're being invidious. Is it terminal? Yes. <laughs> Envy is best defined as an emotion that occurs when a person lacks another's perceived superior quality, achievement, or possession, and either desires it for themselves or wishes the other person lacked it. There you go, Envy. Best defined as an emotion that occurs when a person lacks another's perceived superior quality, achievement, or possession, and either desires it or wishes the other lacked it. In Christian circles, uh, this actually gets amplified because within Christian circles in America, um, we have this thing, the perfection game. Because in Christian circles, in church settings, you know some uh, woman who's like the perfect Christian wife, and you know she has the air, and when you do the ladies' Bible study, and she talks about how they've got like the Bible verses on the wall, and she's doing all this stuff, and her kids can name all 5,000 books of the Bible. There's only 66. But they can name all of them in order with a psalm or a limerick. And you're like, well, I can't do that. And, or, and again, in Christian circles, there's the perfect family. You know, they're the ones whose kids, yes, sir, no, sir. They're just so polite. And, you know, they're well-mannered and adjusted. And then you've got your kids and you think, ooh. <laughs> you know, what a, what? you know, because again, it's this perfect thing that goes along. Or there's a friend at church or in small group, and they're the friend who, you know, it's, they just walk with God all the time. They're always on the mountaintop. And you're like, I would take a hill, really, just a speed bump. And I'd be, Lord, give me a speed bump, and I'm, I'm yours for the next decade. I mean, you know, but they're always up there with Elijah and Moses and Jesus. And, you know, and it, it gets ramped up in Christian circles. The comparison game is never fun, is it? It's just never, never fun. Because we always end up comparing ourselves most of the time to people who have more, who are further along, who are better, stronger, faster, you know, how often do you really compare yourself to like a homeless person? I mean, it's just, you know, percentage-wise, it just doesn't factor in there. And so when we do the comparison game, we always compare up. That's what we tend to do because that's how things work in America. Um, Jesus' closest friends, by the way, struggled with envy in the comparison game. 
uh, two of them, the more famous ones, John and Peter. And so if you brought a Bible today, I want you to open it to the Gospel of John, John chapter 21. This is my favorite. I love this book of the Bible. It's my favorite book. This is why my son is named John. We named him after the Gospel of John. I just love this Gospel. Okay, so we're in John chapter 21. And, and uh, chapter 21 is kind of like an epilogue. So it's this add-on chapter at the end of the Gospel. And John's kind of bringing up some themes that he talked about in the first 20 chapters. It's kind of like the last film in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Return of the King. After the battle, the film goes on for like another 30 minutes. <laughs> you know, all the women in the theater are like, I'm ready to go. You know, but for every, you know, it's very satisfying because he, you know, ties everything up in that last half hour. Well, that's kind of what John does in chapter 21. He ties all these things together in kind of an epilogue. And, uh, the setting of this, chapter 1, is, of course, Jesus has been killed on a cross. He died. He was buried. He came back to life. And so this is after the resurrection. And the first part of this chapter, uh, Peter decides that he wants to go fishing, and all the other disciples and some of other, Jesus' other friends decide, okay, we'll go too. So they're all, all out on the lake fishing and this guy is along the shore. They can't see him real well. And he's like, you know, calls out, hey, catch any fish? No, nah, it's a bummer night, you know, stupid idea. Blah, blah, blah. And he's, well, hey, throw your net on the other side. Are you a rocket scientist? So, you know, they do. And, of course, they catch so much fish, they can barely bring the net in. Well, Peter immediately is like, oh, I know who that is. Jumps in the water, swims to shore, and sure enough, it's Jesus. All right? So that's where we pick it up. And, and this is uh, chapter 21, verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Well, yeah, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. And Jesus repeated the question, verse eight, uh, 16. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. Once more, verse 17, Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that Jesus had asked the question a third time. Well, now, for those of you that have been Christians a long time, you know there's like this debate, you know, the first two times in the Greek, the word used is agape, and the last time there's phileo and blah, blah, blah. You could get into that. I'm not, because I think when Jesus and Peter were talking, they probably spoke Aramaic. And well, seriously, and so whatever's in the Greek, probably, you know, there's no connection. And, and, Think back to when you were a kid for a moment or a teenager and your mother asked, have you cleaned your room? Yeah. And, it, you know, no, have you cleaned your room? Yes, mom. You know, the third time she asked, aren't you a little peeved? What, you don't believe me? What is the issue here? Can you not hear? Are your ears not working? I said to clean my room. Okay, so no wonder, you know, Peter, by the third time, he's getting a little agitated. Uh, and so then Jesus lays out something pretty significant. Uh, the second part of verse 17, Peter was grieved that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And Jesus said this, then feed my sheep. The truth is, when you were young, you, you were able to do as you liked and go wherever you wanted to. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and others will direct you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know what kind of death would, he would die to glorify God. And then Jesus told him, follow me. Well, then Peter, out of his peripheral vision, 
notices John, his friend John, standing there. And, and Peter does a classic thing that we've all done, which is, what about him? What? You mean I'm going to do this death thing and, you know, it's going to be bad and, you know, what about him? And this, Okay, I love what Jesus said. If I want him to remain, uh, oh, well, let's go back. Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during the supper and asked, Lord, who among us will betray you? And Peter asked Jesus, what about, what about him, Lord? Uh, verse 22, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You, you follow me. I get a lot out of this little interchange. I really do. Um, on the one hand, you've got this, this beautiful thing about personality and differences in uniqueness playing out between Peter and John. Peter's impulsive. He's an impulsive guy. I mean, all you have to do is read the Gospels, and you see that. You know, hey, Lord, you want us to nuke him now? I'll call down fire. I'm ready, baby. Ching. You know, uh, he's just go with the moment, Peter. But he's clearly a natural leader. In the very first part of this chapter, it's Peter who decides he wants to go fishing, and everybody else goes. You know, I, you know, if Peter decided he wanted to take a basket weaving, they all would have been basket weaving. I mean, he's a leader. John, on the other hand, John is quiet and unassuming. He's a contemplator and a thinker. It's why the Gospel of John is such a rich book, a rich gospel compared to the other uh, three. Uh, and so they're so utterly different. Um, remember uh, when the women reported that Jesus wasn't in the tomb? Who are the people racing to the tomb? Peter and John. You think there's a little bit of a contest to see who could get there first? And in the Gospels, we're told who got there first and who did what as a result of getting there. Okay? There's some rivalry going on. I bet there's a little bit of envy going on in this friendship. And, and Jesus, in his response in chapter 22, if I want him to relay, remain alive until I return, what's that to you? In other words, hey, Peter, what happens to John is none of your business. You follow me. I spent, like I said, a lot of time at the pool this summer. And uh, I've, I'm the starter, so I'm the guy who does the, you know, swimmers take your mark, beep, and then they all go, poosh and they swim. I didn't grow up swimming, but I've learned this stuff. At the meet last week, it was, I thought I would bust a gut. I did, you know, they line them up. I do the swimmers, take your mark, beep, and they, poof, they all get in the water, and there's this one girl. It's a group of girls swimming. She's three lanes in, and she's doing stroke, stroke, stroke to look at the girl in the other lane. <laughs> And then she goes back down and stroke, stroke, stroke. And the girl's up there now. <laughs> and then she's got this panic look. Oh, my gosh. And then she goes down and stroke, stroke, stroke. She did that the whole race. She came in last. <laughs> Go figure, okay? If, if, if you're swimming, if you're swimming and, and you're doing the comparison game, you know, you're going to be in trouble if you're always worried about the people in the other lanes, aren't you? Okay? And I think, to paraphrase uh, John 21 and put it in swimming language, in essence what J Jesus is saying to Peter is, hey, look, you're in your lane. You worry about your lane. Forget about the people in the other lane. S focus and stay on your lane. Okay? You follow me. If you're swimming, should you really be looking at the other people in the other lanes? No. 
who should, as, as Jesus' followers, who should we be focused on? Jesus. Not Annie Stanley or Craig Rochelle or Billy Graham or the Pope or whomever, okay? Uh, Jesus. What if Moses had decided, instead of being the person leading out, that he was going to be the general to conquer Canaan? Or what if David, the king, had decided, you know what? I should be a prophet like these guys who can get this direct revelation from God. Or what if Jeremiah had decided, well, I want to govern. I could make a good president. It would be crazy talk, some of those things. And yet it happens. I mean, think about it. There's six to seven billion people that God's made. And no two are exactly identical. Even identical twins aren't identical. They're not. They're different. That's on purpose. There's only one you. And so, just like in swimming, if you're competing against anybody, you're really just competing against yourself. All right? So, here, here's where the rubber hits the road. Let me ask some questions. Here's my first question. If, if you've struggled at times with the comparison game, maybe it's with a family member, a brother, sister who has more, has gone farther, faster, somebody at work, I don't know what it is in your sphere, in your world, um, Rather than worrying about their lane and how fast or slow they're going, um, what's the last clear thing God told you to do? I mean, really, that's the benchmark. And if you have to go back a decade or more, go back a decade or more. But what's the last clear thing God told you to do? Do that and stop worrying about the people in the other lanes. Um, And here's my second question. Suppose for a moment that you were to become better, faster, stronger, just like these other people in these other lanes, would that somehow mean that God loved you more as a result of it? Does his love grow as you get faster in the swimming lane? No. Okay, so get your eyes off the person in the next lane. And a great way to do that, by the way, is reading the Bible because you start hearing from God. And it, it may take a while. The first time I started reading through the Bible, I started reading in Matthew I got six chapters in before I heard God speak to me. I mean, I don't know how long it will take for you. Maybe it will take quicker. Maybe it'll take longer. But God does speak as you're reading his word. See, you and I live in a culture that celebrates celebrity and success. And it's how many followers do you have on Twitter? Well, if you're Ashton Kutcher, you know, you've, you've got six billion followers. <laughs> you know, uh, not even Obama has that many. Okay, uh, And so we live in a society that celebrates those things. And if you don't have 6 billion followers on Twitter, you're tempted to think, well, gee, I don't amount to much. But again, that's that's crazy talk because you're doing the lane comparison thing. Why is this important? Here's why this is important. When you and I get to the other side, and I'm talking about, you know, the other side, as vis-a-vis heaven, the resurrected life. When you and I get to the other side, God's not going to ask you or me and hold you or me to a standard of somebody else, your brother. Well, why weren't you like him? Or why weren't you like your parents? Or why didn't you do what Billy Graham did? God didn't create 7 billion Billy Grahams, did he? We're not all identical, are we? Okay? The question that he's going to ask you and me is, did you do what I asked you to do? And, and really, we get, a, we get a glimpse in the thing in, in John chapter 21, and it's repeated in other places. You... Follow me. 